All right, good to see everybody. If you can, we can make our way to our seats. I don't want to interrupt the sheep doing what sheep do, gathering. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers will bring you a Bible. If you don't have your Bible with you today, raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring a Bible. Everybody good? Everybody got their Bibles? All right. Go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Today we have communion as well. We always have communion the first Sunday of the month, so thank you for joining us. It's so good to see you. You're all alive. You made it through the, ch- the week-long fast for the church. We had a beautiful time on Friday as we all gathered and broke the fast together and I don't, you know, the Lord multiplied the soup as I was, my wife, Lisa, she's in the nursery. <laughs> we're looking, we're like, Lord, we, we, we gathered with Liz. We started holding hands and praying. We're like, man, people are coming out. This is great. And we're like, there's not even enough soup. So, but uh, God provided. He always does, doesn't he? He's so gracious. He's so gracious. Well, we're going to a, a beautiful chapter. I mean, if, if you really think about it, I don't know if I mentioned this a few, week back, few weeks back, um, Y'all know what rabbit trails are or tangents, right? We, we, we're fr- fairly familiar with those, uh, especially if you've been attending this church any time. You know I can, I can find my way down those. Uh, in this portion of 2 Corinthians, Paul, really after he begins to explain to the Corinthian church why he had not gone back and visited that additional time that he expected. We talked about that a few weeks back. He really, all the way up until chapter 7, he sort of breaks off, and I won't call it a tangent. Certainly it was Holy Spirit-led. But he goes off and he begins to talk about these things like, you know, reinforcing the resurrection, suffering. Chapter 4 is all about suffering. Y'all woke up this morning, you're like, I am glad I came to church today to learn about suffering. Praise the Lord, Right? But it's important. It's an important mark of the spiritual. You're never closer to the Lord than when you're broken and laid out before him. You know, so much of the church today wants to talk about, you know, this name it and claim it garbage and all this, you know, oh, we gotta be on. Man, when you're broken on your knees and you've got nothing left and you go to God and you're just like, Lord, meet me where I'm at. And he begins to build you up and he begins to carry you. You've met with the living God. We shouldn't run from that. God shapes us and conforms us to his perfect image and likeness. That's what he's doing. And yes, it's painful and uncomfortable. But it's like any time you salt a fire or any time you take the dross out, what? It becomes more refined, more pure. It's beautiful. But it's it's a work of sanctification. It's a process that's being done in our hearts, our minds, our souls, and eternally in our spirits because these bodies are failing, man. Right? We're, we're body, we're soul, and we're spirit. The body's going to fail. Second Corinthians, right? We, we know that. 5.8, absent with the body, present with the Lord. But our spirit, the very thing that communes with God, oh, he's shaping, he's molding. It's a beautiful thing. So this chapter is going to deci- describe sort of the death-like suffering that Paul had to endure in the ministry. And I, and I would suggest to you, if Paul had to endure it, we do as well. And it was be- it's beneficial to the believer to produce thanksgiving and glory to God. That's what he's ultimately going to show us here. Thanksgiving and glory to God. So let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and then we'll begin. Father, I, think, I ask you and thank you that you are always in our presence, Lord. That when your word is being opened and, Lord, read, we know that your spirit dwells in us corporately, individually. And God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds here this morning. Lord, we, we ask this 
prayed earlier that any distraction, any cares of this week, Lord, all of it would fall away. And all that would remain right now is you, Jesus. All we'd see and hear is from your holy word. Lord, I pray I would just fade to the background. And every believer here, Lord, everyone would just sit and sup with our Lord Jesus. That's my prayer, Father. And I know that's the prayer of our brothers and sisters. We need more of you. Let us hear what your spirit has to say. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. So you might remember last week, Paul, in chapter 3, right around verse 8, described this ministry of the Spirit. He was really comparing the two, if you look at it, because he was saying that there's the law, right, the old covenant, and he describes that as one ministry. And then he talked about this ministry of the Spirit. And and it was sort of, if you came at it the first time and you read it the first time, you might find that a little bit confusing. How could the law or the old covenant have been glorious? And he goes on to describe, obviously, the new covenant and what we have a better covenant, even more glorious, right? He says, if the old covenant, which brought death, right, had glory, we should expect great glory, great glory in the new covenant, which brings what? The ministry of the Spirit and life. That's what he says. So the old, the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation, but the new, the new covenant is its tongue twister there. The new covenant is a ministry of what? Of righteousness. That's what we see. The old covenant is passing away, but the new covenant remains. That's why the new covenant has much, a much more glorious and is a much more glorious covenant. And so as we begin here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look at how he's going to build on that because he's going to say, therefore. And whenever we see the therefore, we should say, what's it therefore, right? We know that. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What's Paul saying there? The ministry of the new covenant, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he knew his glorious calling to ministry. Paul understood that, but he also knew it was not due anything of his own. He knew that it was all but mercy, right? And by mercy in its very nature is what? Undeserved. It was undeserved. That's why he received it by mercy. Paul was preaching the gospel with humility. Now, He says, we do not lose heart. The Greek word there for lose heart, underline that in your Bible, is not the idea of what we might think of losing heart today where, well, I'm with despair. No, that's that's not what he's talking about here. This idea is, believe it or not, in the Greek, faint-hearted cowardness, to be cowardly. He says, no, we, we don't grow cowardly. No, what we ultimately end up doing is we grow bold through the Spirit cowardly. That's what it means in the Greek. It's ekakeo, that word. So Paul is saying not only do we have a lack of of courage, but we did not have a lack of courage, but we also did not have a bad behavior. There was no evil conduct, nothing like that before you. This is all wrapped up in that Greek word. In verse 2, it says that Paul and his companions renounced the hidden things of shame. Do you see that? not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. This means Paul preached the gospel with integrity. 
Do you remember we talked about last week that word sincere in the Roman government, in the Roman Empire, what that meant? Sincere without wax. That when they were taking a a sculpture, if they had uh, accidentally lobbed off an arm, lobbed off a finger, lobbed off an arm, they weren't going to retake and cast out of marble the entire statue or sculpture again. It took many months to, to do that, many weeks. What they would do is they would take a mixture of wax with marble and they would form it together and then place it onto the statue to maybe replace the thumb, the nose, the arm, something that had broken off. It's a very unique term in the Greek that we see here that, that we don't see elsewhere in the Bible. Paul was very intentional through the Holy Spirit what he was communicating. He says, we have sincerity. That's what that word, that's the translation of our English word. Sincere, without wax. There's nothing phony about it. There's no phoniness. There's, we don't play church. We don't play Christian. It's, it's got integrity, the gospel. Paul had integrity as an ambassador of the gospel. That's what he's saying here. And then this Greek word, deceitfully, it's a verb only found here in the New Testament. It's the only place you'll find it in all of your Bible in the New Testament, that word deceitful there, that way. And it means to dilute, adulterate. What was going on at that time in that church and the reason Paul was writing back is because you had many coming back and they they were giving a false gospel. Now, I know this is hard, a little irony here. I know this is hard today for us to understand that uh, with pastors sitting behind pulpits giving different gospels. I, I, I know it's not a stretch, man's wisdom, right? You don't care what a man thinks, nor should you. But what does the Bible teach us? What does Jesus say? And when I look at this and I, I, I see Paul's heart, what he was going back is he was specifically challenging those that were watering down the gospel. Jesus plus something. What does Jesus plus something make? It makes a religion, not a relationship. Not a relationship. It's Jesus. Remember we talked about on Wednesday the depth, you know, prior, the veil? We could only come as far as God had established us to come in the Holy of Holies. But that veil, when it was torn from the top down so that no man could repair it to deceitfully do something that was trying to cover what God had opened, removing the veil. Do you remember that? Now we press in, and God's given us that free will that we can go as deep with the Lord as we want to go. We must decrease so that he can increase, ever decreasing. That's not popular today. That, that isn't something like you walk out of here and go, yeah, and you know, no, no. People would rather have those tickling ears. Oh, kumbaya. <laughs> but that's, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be affliction, but we have victory. We have victory in spite of it. It doesn't define us. But, but he specifically tells them, look, don't be listening to a different gospel, something that's diluted or adulterated. No, he didn't preach a concealed gospel, right? Renouncing the hidden things of shame. That's what that means. Or, or a corrupted gospel, something that was crafty, right? Something deceitful, mixing the message with human intellect or, or watering it down to fit his audience. He didn't put a pub in the church to try to attract young people in an attempt to bait and switch them. How does that feel when you walk into a, a store and you, you want to purchase something and you see a sale price and you come in and they, well, no, that's not what, no. 
Jesus certainly isn't going to be working without sincerity and integrity, sincere, without wax. Paul preached the gospel with humility. He says something very important here, and we need to acknowledge this this morning. He says, in the sight of God. When you preach the gospel, you're not to be a respecter of man. You're not to be looking at what man, it is in the sight of God that you do these things. Paul preaches gospel before God, and that's what matters. Are you sincere with integrity? You're not manipulating a message to try to lure somebody in. You know the best way to give the gospel is to invest in a human life. To turn around and get to know somebody and invest in them and earn the privilege to be able to give them the greatest news ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't Bible thump somebody. It doesn't work. Verse three, but even if our gospel is veiled, so he says, but even if, it's not, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Man, that's heavy. So who is the God of this age, right? This is the only place you'll find this in scripture, uh, the name for this individual. We know it's Satan who he's talking about, the liar, the father of all lies. This is the only place you'll see it. Normally he's referenced in Ephesians 2.2, the prince of the power of the air. But in this particular area, Paul, led by the spirit, referred to as the God of this age. Does that mean that Satan is the God of the earth? Well, let's look what scripture says. Psalm 24 one tells us, the earth is the Lord in its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. That sounds like God's got the title deed and he allows Satan for a measure. But yet Matthew chapter four, verses eight and 10 tells us that Satan was uh, when he was tempting Jesus, you remember the three times as he went back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, every time Jesus would thwart one of the fiery darts that the enemy would try to throw. But he brings him up to this very high mountain. Remember, he says, I'll give all this to you. What was he doing? He's saying, hey, I'll short circuit this whole thing. You don't need Calvary. You don't need the cross. I'll give you these nations and, and kingdoms as though he had the power to do it. Jesus didn't necessarily correct him on that, right? That wasn't the point because what he was really doing is directing them back to the word of God and saying, no, no, you're lying. A half truth's a full lie. But the answer is very simple. If you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 13, verse one, he explains it to us. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, if you know Romans chapter 13, it's really talking about praying for our president, praying for our leaders, our government officials. That, that they would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and that God, God would be leading them and encouraging them to do what's right and found in Scripture. But I think it's not wrong to extrapolate what God is saying here on a bigger cosmic. I don't see that's a problem. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from who? God. I think that's an open, closed case. There is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God allows it. And I think that's solved according to Scripture. So even if our gospel is veiled, as Paul was saying, or he's trying to suggest to the Corinthians, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
right? If people don't want to respond to the glorious gospel, it, it's certainly not Paul's fault, nor is it the gospel's fault, is it? Only those that are perishing are those missing the message. Those who are perishing are from or for whom the gospel's veiled have been what? Blinded. Underline that. That's why that's there. He's telling us they've been blinded. It's not intentional. It's not God's design. By the God of this age. Now, how does he accomplish this? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, what did Paul say? That Satan, the enemy, will appear as an angel of light. Or there's another extreme, right? There's always extremes on a pendulum. He convinces people he doesn't even exist. You know, it's in your imagination. Oh, that's not true. The Bible's very clear. Lucifer, we studied it. Isaiah 14, I will. You know, it was never the great I am versus the I will. The angel's a created being. It's, it's never a, it's never, he's a created, God's eternal. Angels are immortal. We're mortal. It's never been close to a battle for God. He has authority over everything. He's created everything, and he allows. Satan, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, Satan influences people's hearts and minds. Satan snatches away the gospel from the hearts that are not fertile. We read that in Matthew 13, 9, when he describes the different types of ground, speaking to the fertility of heart. Satan misrepresents the truth. We saw that right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, and John chapter 8, verse 44. He's a father of lies. And boy, he can be convincing, can he? He can really get us turned around if we don't do exactly what Jesus did and to rebuke Satan, to take that helmet of salvation, which is part of the armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11 through 17, to take that helmet of salvation and put it on and not look to the temporal, but be focused on the eternal and to be taking every thought captive and then discerning, is this from you, Lord, or is this a lie from the flesh, the world, or the devil? It's quite simple, difficult in the moment, but quite simple as a process. He's, he says, brethren, you're not ignorant to these things. Do you remember we read that last week? You're not ignorant to what the enemy wants to do. He said that in chapter 2, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Hmm. Maybe some modern day examples will stir thoughts on the matter for when it comes to the concern of worldliness, or as Jesus said, the cares of the world. There are some people that say today we're far too busy to be concerned with God. It's, it's hard enough to just earn a living. I'll ponder the things of God later. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. Others may say, well, I thank God that we're not financially struggling. We're doing very well, but we're far too busy with fun and living a life to its fullest. Some, again, are blinded by the devil in a, in a desperate way by the love of some favorite sin. They would actually choose their sin over God. And I know some of you be saying, no, pastor, that doesn't happen. Well, you're not in counseling with me all week. It does. I've said it before, 95% of the time when I'm in counseling, it's a lordship issue. It's not the fire insurance. Nobody has problem with salvation. Nobody has problem with a savior. Everybody's like, sign me up, man. 
but a master, a Lord, who's, by the way, so gracious and loving and kind. But many fear that because there's accountability and responsibility. It's going to be a matter of wills. His will or our will be done. That's really what it comes down to. That's why it's a lordship issue. But I, I'll sit in counseling sometimes and I'll, I'll look right at somebody if it's an adultery situation and, and um, not call anybody out here or anything like that. But if it's a situation like that, I'll, I'll sit right there and I'll say, look, you know what the Bible teaches? It's, it's a choice. What are you going to do? You'd rather divorce. You'd rather commit, you know, you've committed adultery. You'd rather do this than honor what the living God, the God of everything is telling you. You're going to throw all of that away. Do you really believe? Who's your Lord? And it's at that moment that they're really pointed to a position. What do you choose? Do you choose this this relationship, this fling, this whatever you're doing here? For a moment, a season, a moment of pleasure, for, for, for the sin that's tearing you apart inside and, and separating you from God? And, I, and, and unfortunately, friends, I, I've had people look at me right in the eyes and say, yes. At which point, I just begin to weep because there's nothing more I can say or do. I just begin to weep. Maybe you've been in conversations like that with friends or loved ones or, or individuals, and maybe it's not regarding adultery, but, but fill in the blank of whatever, whatever that favorite sin is. They'd rather that than going to dad, going to their father in heaven. Others are blinded because they, they fall into the tr- desperate trap of intellectualism. It's the movement, I think, of today. If I had to define uh, the movement of our century, it's humanism, intellectualism. Certainly God wants us to study the Bible. He's created us as intelligent beings. But when we begin to intellectually argue with God, Job tried it. It didn't work out so well, right? But there are they, there's those today that try to argue God out of existence. You know, there's a word in a, a psychosis for that. Do you, do you know what we would call that today? It's a mental illness, actually. It's called denial. Right? We'd look at somebody else and we'd give a reality of denial. And we'd say, no, no, no. But today everybody wants to make everybody feel so good, warm, and fuzzy. Real love, perfect love, is not allowed to someone to stay in that sin and get comfortable with it but to really love and invest in them and come alongside them within the sin and draw them back to the word just as Jesus did. Spurgeon notes that there is yet a worse case of blindness to those even in the church, hovering around the church. I'd I'd like to read his quote. "There There are people that are blinded by some special conceit of false grace. Here's a man who's attended to many duties. Some, of course, he does not care about, but he makes up for his duties he does not like by attending to the others that are to his taste. He does not pray, but then he sings in the choir. Communion with God? He does not know anything about that, but he takes the sacrament. 
He has never repented of sin, but then he has found fault with other people for their sins. And he regards that he's almost good. He doesn't need to help the poor or needy, but then he has a capital plan for lowering the assessment for welfare. He's always doing some good thing or other of, of a kind, but not of the kind that Scripture prescribes. As for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by living a faith, trusting in him, that is beyond his range. As for seeking a new heart and a right spirit and being converted and turned from darkness to light, he does not know anything about that. But there has been, after all, a very great improvement in him. He has given up some questionable practices, and on a whole he has done a good deal which ought to be spoken of with considerable commendation. This is the kind of gentleman who is blinded by God or by the God of this world. Did you get what he was hinting at, Spurgeon, what he was describing? That lukewarm attitude. You know, that attitude of indifference. Of just sort of fitting in and disappear, disappearing, you know. I mean, after all, I, I do, you know, I'm a good person. I do good things. Do you know what the friends, the measurement isn't compared to our peers. We don't look to the left or to the right and say, well, I'm doing better than that guy. You all can say you're doing better than this guy. You all can say that. But who's the measure? Jesus. And as Romans chapter three says, when, when I look at that, I, I, I see the wages of sin at that. I, I can see Romans six, you know, I can see it all. I can see that I need Jesus. That's why Paul, when he began to write to the Roman church, a church he had never visited yet, he, he really takes the entire group of people and says, look, we are all bridled in one thing right here, and that is sin, and we need Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's the only thing that's going to set us free. Now, it's important because as we look where Paul's going, it's nothing that I've described or the examples I gave earlier can a man say that the devil made me do it? It doesn't mean that they're innocent victims of Satan's binding work, and that's not what Paul's saying here. There's some that have tried to take an extreme on that, eisegeting instead of exegeting, exo meaning pulling out in the Greek. Though men love darkness and worse choose darkness, Satan, Satan still works hard to keep them blinded to the glorious gospel of light. That's what he's talking about here. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Satan works on the hearts and emotions of the lost. But his main battleground is what? Look back to verse 4. What's his main battleground? It's a battle for the mind. Exactly. Satan's after the mind. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should be shine in them. To see this glory is to be saved. Therefore, Satan directs his energies into blinding men forever, seeing that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ will do what? Will bring about salvation and set them free. If you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, maybe there's somebody here. That's me. What do I do? Well, Paul already provided the answer. He provided the antidote right here. He, he actually provided it as part of the systematic problem that he was describing. He said they did not do what? They did not. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. What did he say? He said they did not believe. 
In other words, as Romans 10, 9 says, that if you confess with your mouth Lord, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the only antidote. There are not multiple ways. There is no pluralism. There are not multiple paths. Jesus and him crucified is all that I will preach. Isn't that what Paul said? I know no other God. I know nothing else. Because he tried that in Athens. He tried intellectualism. He tried taking the message and shaping the message to the audience in which he was going to speak to. If you entertain people with a false gospel or a rock concert or anything else, every week you're going to put on a show to get the people to come back. If you read the word of God and you meditate in your heart and mind on what God is saying to your heart, allowing the Holy Spirit, I don't need to provide application, the Holy Spirit is doing that. If you allow that, as we prayed this morning, Lord, your Spirit, He knows what you need to hear and how you need to hear it, and He's more, far more gentle and tactful and handles a wielding instrument beautifully as He cuts out only what needs to be removed and preserves what isn't cancerous, what isn't diseased to the body, to the soul, to the spirit. Satan's work upon them is not the only reason they're blinded. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19, please. It says that this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Though men love the darkness and worse choose the darkness, again, Satan works hard to keep them blinded. Satan also works on the heart and emotions. But like I said, the main battleground is the heart or the mind. We can't forget that. So why is Satan what's Satan so afraid of, right? He's afraid of the gospel of glory of Christ because they'll be saved and set free and redeemed. Let's continue on. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God, for it is this, for it is the God, who definite article, by the way, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul reminded them that we do not preach ourselves. Paul's fingerprints were not on it. There was no fragrance of Paul on that. The focus must be on Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the one that we preach about. Paul did not present himself as a master, but as a what? A servant. It's sweet when you take time to invest in others, but, but you must always be willing to listen to what they want to share. You must invest again in them. Paul lived this example out in Matthew 28, 20, right? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it said that God gives us the light. God gives us the light of the knowledge of God and we have the responsibility to get it out. It's not just for us. What does 2 Timothy chapter 2 say? Pass these things on to faithful men and women to be reproducers. Healthy sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep reproduce. They like to eat. Right? It's the word of God. You know, what's shined in 
is not for us just to keep hidden or just to keep to ourselves, but it's so we can shine out. Only what's poured in can be poured out. Right? Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, back in the ancient times, uh, they didn't have safes. <laughs> they didn't use safes like we would use today or, you know, in the matriots, right? In the mattress, if you know that term or you're familiar with that, right? It, 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 that's not where he, ca- you know, they didn't keep their, their prized possessions. They kept them in vases because if somebody were to break in, right? We're talking about Israel here. Somebody was going to break in and you were going to steal something and you had all these earthen vessels, It'd be difficult to find where's the, you know, where's the spoil? Where's the thing you're really after? You'd have to look around. It would take time, right? I want you to think why he brings this up. The treasure. What is the treasure, he says here? Right? It's the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God made evident through the gospel. It says that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Why does God put treasure in such vessels? What vessels does God put his treasure in? Are we not earthen vessels? Do you see? You see what Paul did there? It had had multiple meaning on on a surface and then a deeper level. He was pointing to the fact that as inadequate vessels as we are, God entrusts each and every one of us born-again believers with his special treasure, the word of God and Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. That's what he's saying here, right? All glory belongs to God. It's not something we possess. It's not something we have. A brother just the other night says, hey, you know, it's like wielding a sword. If you take and put an instrument in someone that's untrained, they'll lob their own ear off, let alone lobbing somebody else's ear off, Right? Peter had a run at that. But when you're surrendered and submitted and God can wield you as a fine-tuned instrument because you and him are in perfect unity, watch out. What can't God do? What can't God do? Don't spend so much time looking at the cracks of the vessel. God isn't. Jeremiah tells us God will take and reshape that vessel to whatever he needs it to be. He's not asking us to do that. While true, he asks us to examine our hearts. And we pray to him to search the depths of our hearts. It's God that does the wielding. It's God that takes and pours out. And when we do that, there are no fingerprints. It was like you were never there, but you know what remains? The seed of the gospel that will germinate and grow. That's the power of God unto salvation. And he tells that to us so that we don't turn around and start to say, I can't do it. I'm afraid. My job doesn't allow me to speak of the name of Jesus Christ. You're a living epistle. You're to be known and read by men and women. It isn't always by what you say or what you don't say. Your life may be the only Bible that someone reads. Live it well. But trust God that when you're submitted as that vessel, he will do the work. Stop worrying about the inadequacies. It's a distraction. 
It's to take you out and put you on a shelf. It's a work of the enemy. We got no business with that. That's not our business. We don't micromanage God, amen? He doesn't need a micromanager. We are hard-pressed. Oh, now we go into a lot of the suffering. He's going to bring it real, right? He's going he's to lay it down hot. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I want you to see that. That's very important. Always a caring, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Something Paul's describing, he's taking it with him. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God is certainly not saying he's being put back on a cross. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And he's certainly not telling us to put him back on a cross. What is he saying? He says, first of all, we're hard-pressed. In the Greek, what's this word mean? We lose it so much in the translation, Greek to English. We really do. This word means you're hunted, right? When when you think of pressed, I'm hard-pressed, does that sound like hunted? No, but that's what it meant in the Greek. You were hunted. You were, you were, there was an enemy after you. Your flesh desires not to do the things of the Lord, right? How do we not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Galatians 5.16, we walk in the spirit. Even the Bible makes a clear delineation, right? He says, yet not crushed. Living like you're hunted involves stress. Your stress is going to be a part of your life but you're going to experience stress moment by moment. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That doesn't mean you have a mental illness. That means there's affliction, there's persecution. It means you're serving the Lord if it's not something that's due to a sin of your own. Let's be clear, you know, clear here. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying for the namesake of Christ. You know, over 200,000 men and women every year are martyred. We had a brother, uh, we were breaking the fast, said, you know, when I was describing, you know, the problem with, you know, the American culture, if you've traveled, you've gone on mission trips, you know, you get out of the States, um, South America, Middle East, there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot different of a dependence on God, not just for food and, you know, sufficiency, but but because there are people that want to actively harm Christians. And I think we know a little bit about that today, but I mean, I can remember brothers you know, in Iran that was telling and sharing and he was saying, you know, we prayed so much for a revival. The church at one point, we had two million. Two million in that surrounding area, the Middle East, Iran, we went down to six Christians because they were all murdered. They had destroyed house churches. They had gone through and just pulled them out. Wives, children, everybody, point blank, executed them. When's the last time that happened to someone you know? Probably not that often in the States, huh? But it's a frequent occurrence in many parts of the world today. You really know what you believe then, don't you? It's not a matter of convenience or comfort. Christianity isn't a hobby. 
you're all in. Because when you're looking at the end of a barrel of a gun, you know quickly who's your God. It's very simple. These men and women, where do they get this peace? Only from Christ. They could never manifest this in themselves. It's not a work they have to lather up in the spirit that way. God, he delivers them. He gives them a peace. Paul is talking about this. I, I, I wanna, we're gonna look at some of this as we kind of go through in the remaining time and then we're gonna have our communion this morning. But, but Paul's saying, look, even though we were hunted, we weren't crushed. Paul's life was hard, right? It was hard because of his passionate devotion to Jesus Christ in the gospel. And just like Paul, you and I, we're not crushed, we're not in despair, we're not forsaken, and we're not destroyed. And don't you let anybody convince you otherwise. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Paul knew the power and victory of Jesus in, in his life, and because of that, continually he found himself in situations where the only power and victory he had was in Jesus, nothing of himself. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Suffering produces a kind of fruit. I, I term it faith fruit. Faith fruit. No, it's not the kind you go out and pick off a tree. Oh, that'd be too easy. It's the kind of faith fruit. This fruit is the only kind of fruit that grows on trees of persecution and sorrow. That's the tree where this kind of fruit grows. But you know what's interesting? When, you, when your faith is tested, actually, what's it produce? When your faith is tested, it produces more faith, doesn't it? It germinates within itself. I want you to think about that. When's the last time you took an orange and placed an orange on your table and watched that go, but on two, but on four, but on, it, I've never seen that. If you have, I would like to be at your house with the fruit. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's working away in my house. I have the opposite problem with four boys. You know, I could put eight oranges on the table, but it's gone, right? So I have, I have the opposite problem. But persecution and sorrow, you know, it's interesting. It produces, faith produces and develops and germinates faith. There's no wasted trial storm because each time we get to see the hand of God move in our lives. Now, many of you are thinking, I don't like this passage of scripture. This is why I was never a fan of topical or jumping around because it's, it's kind of like laying out a buffet, right? And maybe you feel, our feelings betray us. Maybe you're feeling like a little sweet so you go over here and have a little sugar but what you really need at that moment maybe is a little vitamin c maybe you need a little potassium with some banana but you feel and so you've driven towards your what we just went through a corporate fast how did we feel about not eating right day one day two we're okay day three we're like all right day five we're like we don't care some of you are like oh i cared a lot you know but you know we can why? Because we're denying that flesh. That's what it really is about. It's that same idea here, you know? It's, there's no wasted storm. There's no wasted trial. We get to see God move in our lives, and suffering is important because it's, it's a spiritual battle, and it's not just about spiritual things because some of us live very comfortable lives and haven't suffered often, Right? But that's not what Paul's saying here. It's important, it's important that we pay attention. The Christian life is filled with difficulty. 
but he's telling us, thanks be to God, that we're never destroyed. That no matter what you're going through here this morning, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a financial difficulty, whatever it is, God will see you through it. Maybe not always the way you think, but God will bring you through it. What's the ultimate point? Is it to, to turn around and live as long as we can here? To have more of an uh, ample and full-fledged life? Is that the goal? Because if that's the goal, you're sorely going to be disappointed. Because you're never going to find that perfect peace that Christ wants to offer you. That perfect peace only comes through surrender and humility. Learning that the temporal's all going to fade away. Wood, hay, stubble, it's all going to burn. What's going to last forever, what's eternal in you is what? Your spirit. And yet we spend all this money on the body. And I'm not saying it's not wrong. Look, even Paul says it profits little, man. Work out. You know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with, you know, taking supplements. I take good things. Smart, right? God didn't make us fools. But at the end of the day, if I neglect my spiritual walk and all I do is feed the flesh or worry about the body, one-third of the equation, the very part that's going to pass away, I'm going to receive a new glorified body that I'm not going to have to <laughs> turn around and you know, wear these cheaters anymore or wear, you know, I'm not, man. But yet, think about it. I want you to think individually in your lives. Look, I'm not browbeating anybody, but where is all of your emphasis put on? Is it the small fraction of these hundred years if we were so, some say fortunate, I say, you know, not fortunate, you know. If it's really that long, right, as the body starts to fail, there's an Italian saying, Santano, it's that hundred years, if, if it's really that long, right, or are we really looking at the eternity that can't be spanned? It's so enormous. And that speaks to our spirit and the development of our spirit, and it comes by surrender. It's the exact opposite and antithesis of what the world teaches. You can begin to think, man, am I mental? <laughs> am I having a moment? Because according to the world standards, if I'm living this way, then I should be looking to climb that corporate ladder. I should be looking to do all these things. I need more homes. I need more property. I need, I need uh, more riches. I need, it's never, never enough. But when I really realize, when I come to the conclusion of what Paul's saying, when I realize that this affliction, this persecution's coming because I have something that people need, you have something that people need. Hope. Hope. Your faith is only as good as what you place your faith in. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. Eternity with God. That's what it's all about. And living according to his commandments and statutes, certainly not under the ceremonial law, but he never dealt with them. He never did away with the moral law, did he? It's never right to murder. It's never right to abort. Homosexuality is a sin, right? I don't care how the Supreme Court redefines the laws of the land. God 
you have to make these decisions, as, Paul, as Peter and John said. You, for us, you tell us what's right. For us, we serve God. I mean, we're living in the last of the last days. Look prophetically all that's going on around you. You cannot miss it. I don't know when the last time we did our last prophecy update. It's probably been a few months, if not maybe even a year. Maybe we need to do another prophecy update. I mean, it's, it's striking what's happening. And, and, but the point Paul's saying is, look, all this is happening. And it's not limited to spiritual things. The, the Christian life is filled with difficulty. If, if I told you that there were difficulties that would crush you, you would have what? You would have despair, right? But if I told you the difficulties would be removed by God one way or the other, whether him removing you through that circumstance or joining you in it, praying him into the trial with you, or your eyes closing and opening with your Lord and Savior, friends, what do we fear? What do we fear? You see, that gives me great hope. That's what suffering produces. It actually produces hope because it makes me look to what's really important, not what's temporary. Paul tried to do the best to describe how he felt here. I mean, these are very personal experiences he's saying. Paul's saying, look, I mean, here's the apostle of apostles, right? Paul's going, he says, man, hard-pressed, you know, perplexed. Man, I'm perplexed at times. I'm confused, you know, persecuted. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, describes the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Many want a savior, but they, again, they don't want a master or lord. Many want the power of the resurrection, but they want nothing to do with being conformed to his death through the fellowship of his sufferings. God made a more, Paul a more effective minister through his suffering. It's a required course. It's a required course. You know, we're closer to God when we are in complete dependence and relying, relying upon him for every single thought. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that place where literally you have nothing left within you? Where even your mind betrays you? with thoughts that just come 100 miles an hour at you, and you're like, what is going on? Just anxiety or feeling down, you know? What if you told yourself in that moment, the great I am, the God of the universe, the God of everything, looks right at me knows every hair on my head. I am so precious in his sight that he sees me with no spot, no blemish. He sees me in complete righteousness that was imputed by Jesus Christ, his son, to you and I with a new nature without spot or wrinkle. That he's proud of you, that he loves you, that you truly are the apple of his eye. And that everything he thinks about revolves around you. And that he's so madly in love with you that every breath he gives you that he has just placed in you is so that you and him, you and God could grow closer and deeper and more intimate 
than anything else that you could experience in this life what it would have been like in the garden to walk hand in hand with the living God. It's only a moment away. It's only a thought away. Our thoughts can betray us. But if in that moment we can stop and capture and take every thought and realize that our emotions betray us and place them on heavenly things on our Lord. Aren't you madly in love with him? I'm madly in love with him. I mean, everything, everything. That's why Paul says here that while the Christian has, you know, this complete victory as I've been talking about, the constant state of victory, whether we acknowledge it or not, is there. That's what I'm getting at. It's always been there. And it always is there when you're a born-again believer in Christ. More is caught than taught in suffering. And it's through this suffering that others see the hope of Christ in us. Death in us, but life in you. Right? Some of the Corinthian Christians didn't like Paul because of his great sufferings compared to the great victory that they had, but they did not see Paul's heart and thoughts to realize that this was only possible because of the relationship Paul had with Jesus, with God. We're going to close with this. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus, raise us up with Jesus, and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. You know, there's a great purpose in our sufferings. Sufferings of Christ are brought about, and much like I said earlier, we want the resurrection, but we don't want death to self. And without death to self, how are we truly going into the image of Christ? Do you want to hold on to you? Is it ever increasing for you? Or is it ever decreasing? Friends, don't run away from suffering. Only suffering can bring a great purpose. And because we ran out of time, but if you read ahead, it's, it's going to bring this great glory to God. It's what makes Paul so effective he wasn't holding back. There was nothing left. He was trying to help that church understand it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Every bit of it's worth it. You know, I'm going to move up here as we get ready. The musicians can come up. As we get ready to take communion here this morning, you know, our passage is going to be in Matthew chapter 26. I want you to think about this for a minute. If you study the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you even look at you know, John where it describes the washing of feet. Okay? I want you to think about the Last Supper and how that was an intimate Passover meal. Have you ever thought about the last man that was seated? We know about approximately where three, four people had sat at that Last Supper table. And do you know where Jesus would have been and how the one whom he had loved had leaned on his breast? Who was that? 
John. We know where he sat. We know who sat next to him because he had to be able to dip across. But there was somebody that sat over across because remember, tables were not you know, on the ground. They weren't like what we have today. Sat across. And do you know who that was? That was Peter. And do you know that position and that place? Go back and study it scripturally. That position and place that he had at that Seder dinner was the last person seated. And do you know what the responsibility was for the last person that was seated in that position at a Seder? Anybody Jewish here? That person would have been responsible for taking the, well, in this case, we use the elements, but they would have taken the food and they would have been bringing that out to the table. They would have been the one to help serve. But do you know what had to happen before you would serve? Because they were traveling, right? And they would come through this, you know, desert area, their feet would be dirty. And so as a good host, as you would have them, that position normally would have been, if you were a family that was well-to-do back then, would have been the servant. The servant would have sat in that position. But when the servant wasn't, in this case, who was it? It was Peter was sitting in that position. And while he's sitting there, what they would have done is normally Peter would have allowed everybody to get there. And what would he have done? He would have gone over. He would have taken off their sandals and he would have begun to do what? Wash their feet as a good host, right? To love, to, to, to do that, right? To, as, a, as maybe he wasn't the host himself, but for his master, he would have done that. I want you to think what happened when Peter was sitting in that position. Did Peter jump up to go and take off the sandals of all the disciples? Was Peter about that submission and surrender at that moment? Or did Peter in his mind think, well, gosh, the other guys are going to know if I go do this, I'm admitting what? That I'm the lowest. I'm the lowest in the rank. And if they see that, maybe they're going to think less of me. Or maybe then they'll say, yeah, you know, Peter. So you know who does? Who gets up? Jesus, because he said he came to do what? Serve and not be served. Did you ever think about what part or what time Jesus knew? Because he's God. He's, um, he was the God man, 100% human, 100% divine. He knew. He had already prophesied three different times that he was going to Calvary. He was going to the cross to be crucified so that our sins would be laid to rest. Passed by, no, no covering, but complete removal, right? The, the Greek word for atonement goes all the way back in a Septuagint to that mercy seat. If you took a Greek Bible, Septuagint, and you looked all the way back, it's the same word for atonement. It wasn't removing. It, it wasn't a covering, pardon me. It was a complete removing of sin. Here's Jesus the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the entire world. And in that moment, Peter, Petra, who this, this church, right? Not, not the first bishop, but the church is going to be built in some ways emulated from his servant's heart. Because Jesus exampled that, th- that very thing. And, and he comes and he, he turns around and he says, no, I, I, I can't. I won't do that. So Jesus gets up, our master, and he puts himself in the lowest position 
possible. Knowing that in a very short time, he's also going to go to the cross and a spiritual transaction is going to take place. The one thing that he could never have understood, all things God knows, but the one thing that he was never acquainted with was what? Sin. Did you ever think about that? We get afraid of the unknown, don't we, sometimes? Did Jesus not have his moments when he said, but your will be done? Certainly. So that in all ways, he could relate, be acquainted with sorrow. And yet we want to run away from it. And he wants us to enter into it with him in this beautiful fellowship because ultimately we have the victory through it. That's why it's paradoxical. He wants to really set us free. He doesn't want us holding on so tight that we're so busy looking at the cracks of the vessel. And he takes us to the the Last Supper to to remind us of this. This is a a ceremony where he says, I want you to do this, do this, this do often in remembrance of me, right? He, He says this. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, the third cup, and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? Revelation chapter 19. When we take these elements, we know this is not the actual body of Christ. We know it's not his actual blood. But when you begin to look at what he spoke here, the wine spoke of his blood indicating a terrible death, right? That he would soon experience. The perfect son of God became the fulfillment of countless Old Testament prophecies. And he said, do this remembrance of me. So should we run from that communion with God, even if it's a communion of suffering? Or should we pray God into it and allow uh, him to deliver us out of it one way or another? Amen? I'd like to ask the ushers to come up. We'll partake of this together. Let's worship our Lord. For again, whom shall we fear? And then we'll partake together. Is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father? There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou
Again, we read Matthew chapter 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it, gave it to disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Praise you, Jesus, which has been shed for many for the remission of sins. You know, as we read in Second Corinthians 4, and we looked at the affliction that awaited, I want you to think of Christ for a moment and the affliction that awaited him and the weight and the produce of eternal glory that it was going to bring to the Father and how when you and I join him in that affliction as well as in that resurrection, we partake of a beautiful eternal glory that belongs only to our Father, only to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and through the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads and pray, and we'll partake together. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you that the fingerprints of Jesus and his fragrance, Lord, so penetrates. Lord, our being here, we lose identity of self, Lord, in a just a perfect submission, God to the only one that's worthy, Lord, you. As we take this communion, God, I pray that, Lord, we can reflect in all the thanksgiving that we have to proclaim your coming again, to look at what you did in Calvary, Lord, and to just rejoice that we have been separated from sin, that we are partakers of the resurrection and the glory of God. Lord, may our lives be dedicated unto you alone for your glory forever and ever. And all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Let's partake together.
and in unity as a family. One, two, three. All right, amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we just thank you again for all that you've done. We ask that you'd give us travel mercies and send us our way. Lord, uh, equip us as willing vessels to go out and be faithful and serve you all the days of our lives. Lord, create those divine appointments for us that you've set forth. God, to you be the glory forever and ever. We all pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen, amen. amen. God bless you and have a beautiful day. I love you.